I think there are two things that most Christians would agree about. The first is that God is sovereign, that God is in control of the events of this world, of the universe indeed, that according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, God orders all things according to the wisdom, the counsel of his will. I'm sure that most true Christians would agree with that. But the second thing that we would all agree about is that the world is in a total mess. Chaos indeed at times. But the world is, is a very troubled place. A place where there are all manner of problems, difficulties, wars and rumours of wars, natural disasters, personal disasters, disagreements, arguments, conflicts. The world is in a mess and you can be forgiven, I think, if you've ever had that thought, stop the world, I want to get off. But how can we reconcile the sovereignty of God with the condition of the world? There does seem to be a contradiction there. And in fact, uh, non-believers often taunt Christians with this fact. If God is in control, why is there so much trouble? Why are there natural disasters? If God is a God of love, why is there so much hatred in the world? Well, I think the second psalm goes a long way to answering those questions and explaining why it is that a sovereign God can and does in fact supervise a world in turmoil. And I think it might be useful at this point to give you my three headings although I think we shall only have time to deal with the first two today. The three headings are dethroning God, the second heading is enthroning Christ, and the third heading, which we probably will not get to, is obeying the gospel. So let's, let's begin with the first three verses of the psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, the first thing we need to establish is who are these people? These people who oppose God and want to dethrone him. Well, they're called here the nations. And in Jewish thinking, humanity was divided into only two sections. There were God's chosen people, the Jews themselves, and the rest of humanity, who are called Gentiles. They are the nation, that is the normal 
usage in the Old Testament of the word nations. But we must always remember that Christians must read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament. We must use New Testament eyes to understand and interpret the Old Testament. And there is a very important passage as far as Psalm 2 is concerned <coughs> in the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 25. I'll read a little bit more than that. Chapter 4 and I will read from verse 23. When they were released, now Peter and John had been arrested and uh, arraigned before the council for preaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, and that he had risen from the dead. And they had been told never again to preach publicly uh, with those messages. Uh, but they sent them out away and they were allowed to go home. And when they came to their own company, this is what happened. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well now that is very valuable because it first of all identifies the author of the psalm, tells us that it was David, the psalm itself doesn't tell us that, but here we have a New Testament authority for that fact. Secondly, it identifies the enemies of God that we're looking at in Psalm 2. Who are these people? Well, what we're being told here is it wasn't just the Gentiles. The nations, yes, but there are more among the enemies of God than just the Gentiles. Here they are listed. Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're all in the enemy camp. So even those 
who were Israelites, who were Jews, and who professed to know and to worship the one true and living God, even they are among the enemies of God. And of course we see this continually through the Old Testament, that the Jews were a very rebellious people. They did not obey God, and they were delivered from Egypt by the power of God. They went into the wilderness and spent 40 years wandering around in circles because of their unbelief. They didn't believe God could enable them to overcome the inhabitants of the promised land of Canaan. And so God left them in the wilderness for 40 years until all the adult generation who came out of Egypt had died. So that it was only their children who inhabited and entered the promised land. Two exceptions to that, Joshua and Caleb, who wholly trusted the Lord, they went into the promised land. In fact, Joshua was their leader at that time. So we see here then that in Psalm 2, the enemies of God, those who seek to dethrone him, are all who do not have the faith of Abraham. You see, that's the distinction. Paul works this out in, in the letter to the Romans. He says, uh, all that are Israelites, born of the flesh into the Jewish race, are not Jews, but only those who share and inherit the faith of Abraham, who you remember believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we have here the whole unbelieving world, irreligious or religious, political or personal, lined up with this one desire to get rid of God. Now what exactly was their ambition? What exactly was their desire? Well, it's clear enough here. The kings of the earth and the rulers of the people take counsel together against the Lord, and that is Yahweh, the personal name of God, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and this is what they want to do, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These people believe that they are imprisoned by God, that they are shackled by God's requirements, by God's very existence, that they have to wear the handcuffs of God's law, that they are under an obligation to God, and that is what they cannot bear. Now you say, what about those people who don't believe in God at all? Surely they cannot feel that they're under obligation to God because they don't believe in him. Well, the answer is they have consciences. Paul develops this in, in Romans chapter 2, that those who do not have the law, who knew nothing about the God of Israel, nevertheless have the law of God written in their heart, in one sense, in their conscience. And every human being has a conscience, and that conscience is something we cannot escape. And those, even those people 
we're told in the book of Hebrews that they spend their lives in bondage through fear of death. And so all people, all unbelievers, have this sense in one way or another that their lives are blighted by the existence and demands of God or conscience. They feel that if they could get rid of these bonds, these manacles that are keeping them from doing what they want to do, then they would have total freedom and they would be able to do exactly what they like. They don't understand, of course, that they are in fact slaves to sin. He who commits sin is a slave of sin, said the Lord Jesus Christ. They are in bondage, not only to a sovereign God, but they are in bondage to sin as well. Well, how did it come about that they got into this state of affairs? Why are the unbelievers behaving in this way? Why can't they just say, well, we don't believe in God, we'll just get on with our lives? Well, the Apostle Paul again helps us. He spells out in the opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing to Christians, people who have come out of that state of enmity with God and have believed in the Lord Jesus. But he says to them, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of course, the spirit who works now in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our manner of life in times past, fulfilling the evil desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children under the wrath of God, just like everybody else. Of course, we know that Paul goes on from that and says, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy. But that's the condition of humanity, of every person born into the human race, born because of Adam's original sin. And we are all enemies of God until God turns us around and shows us our sin and gives us the gifts of repentance and faith. Well now what is God's response? We come to our second point and the second point I have called the enthronement of Christ but before we actually get to that enthronement we find there are two responses have a look at that. First response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Well, what causes God to laugh or to smile, as one translator puts it? What is God smiling about? Why does he deride these people? Well, the answer is that in their rage, they just do not understand what kind of a God he is. 
they do not comprehend the utter impossibility of dethroning him, of removing his constraints. First of all, of course, we're told that he sits in the heavens. God is a transcendent God. He doesn't inhabit time. He inhabits eternity. He is not within the material universe because he created it. And therefore he is completely untouchable. Nothing that is done upon earth by man can ever affect God's position, if you like, God's authority, God's glory. They don't understand that. They are ignorant. And we get a lot of help, I think, in, in defining the transcendent nature of God by Paul's sermon or lecture to the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17 and verses 16 and thereabouts onwards. Paul has gone to Athens and he has, he has been alarmed and disappointed to dis discover that these very intelligent people, centre of ancient Greek philosophy and literature and culture, architecture, so much that impresses us even in our own day, so many achievements and yet they were worshipping idols. And Paul sees an inscription to the unknown God and he seizes upon that. And when he speaks to the Athenian philosophers, he begins with that. He says, you are ignorantly worshipping what you do not know. And I'm going to tell you what God is like. I'm going to tell you that it is God who made the earth and everything in it, who made the world and everything in it and that he is Lord of heaven and earth. He told them that God gives to all life and breath and all things, and went on to say that it is in God that we live and move and have our being. And he wants to get across to them how utterly impossible it is for man to challenge God, and that is very applicable here. It is impossible for man, in all his rage and all his plotting and all his schemes, uh, to in some way bring God down to their own level, remove God from his throne, destroy his authority. They can't do it because he is the one who created them. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Above all, he is the one who gives to them, the enemies of God, the critics of God, he gives to them life and breath and all things. He is the one in whom they have their existence. God could remove these people from the face of the earth. God could destroy their existence by a word, by a thought. 
they rely utterly and entirely upon the God whom they're trying to demote for the existence that they possess, for the things that they eat and drink and live upon. They, they, they depend utterly upon him for everything, for every breath they draw. And so, of course, as God looks upon them, he sees the utter futility and hopelessness of their attempts to undermine his authority. I don't know whether you've ever seen uh, uh, the following scenario. Uh, I have more than once. Um, a two-year-old toddler is having a paddy, an anger, screaming, crying, waving its fists around. And its father is standing there holding the child in the air by its collar at arm's length whilst the child flails at him, never touches him of course, cannot reach the father to do him the harm that the child obviously wants to do. I, I see that as a picture here. These enemies of God are like the toddler held in the air in suspense, quite unable to reach God with anything they do or say. And so he laughs, he derides them, because he sees the utter hopelessness of their ambition, and the utter failure of their efforts. God is sovereign. But then there is a second reaction, isn't there here? He who sits in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. And then verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. God is angry with these people. He, he, he derides them because they are helpless to cause him any damage. But nevertheless, he is angry with them because of their sin, said a little while ago, that people, human beings, are the slaves of sin until they are delivered by the gospel of Christ. And God hates sin, and God punishes sin. It deserves to be punished because it is deliberate. You go back to Romans chapter 1 and you'll see how Paul speaks of the ancients in this sense that they did know something about God because they could see his power and deity in the created order. They could look around them and see that somebody must be behind the existence of creation. It, it, it's a highly designed creation. It's a beautiful creation. It is a mathematical creation. It is a creation of order. That's what the word cosmos means. Order. It's organized. The sun rises every morning. It doesn't rise on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays and go absent on Tuesdays and Thursdays. No, not at all. It's, it, there is a regularity. There is an order. There is law, if you like. Natural law in the creation around them. People can see that. They may never have heard 
after the God of Israel. They may know nothing about any religion, but they can look out and they can see the eternal power and Godhead of the one who made everything around them, including themselves. And yet what do they do? They turn their back upon that knowledge and they worship the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator. And they are without excuse, says Paul. They are sinful by deliberate intent, by ignoring such revelation as they have of the nature of God. So he is angry with them and he, he will speak to them in his wrath. And I don't think that necessarily signifies speaking with words. He acts towards them. He deals with them according to his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury. Have you ever wondered why the world is in the mess it is? Why there are all kinds of troubles from natural disasters all the way through to, to personal disasters? Have you ever wondered why? Here is the answer. God is dealing with them. He is speaking to them through their experiences to us, all of us, all human beings. He is speaking to us. He, he, is, he is communicating with us through the mess that the world is in, his anger and wrath against a fallen race of which we are all members before we are rescued from it by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why God can be sovereign and supervise, if you like, a world which is in such utter chaos. The chaos is not accidental. There are numerous theologians and clerics and preachers who, when a natural disaster occurs, are very quick to say, oh, don't blame God. God didn't, didn't know this was going to happen any more than we did. You mustn't blame God. And if anyone does have the temerity to say that this is God's punishment upon that city or upon that land or upon that person, he's called a fanatic, but he's telling the truth. The troubles in the world, personal, political, social, national, international, natural, all these troubles are God speaking to man about his rebellion and showing to mankind as a race that there is nothing they can do to put things right. But then he comes to the third response. And the third response is this, as for me, verse 4, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, I said a little while ago that God could, at a stroke, destroy his enemies. They rest in the palm of his hand. And all he has to do is to close his fist 
and they will be crushed out of existence. But you see, God is not only a God of holiness, not only a God of wrath against sin, but he is a God of mercy. And he has opened a door of escape for those who are rebels and enemies against him. And that door of escape is embedded in this situation that we're reading of in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Instead of destroying the kings of the earth and the people who rage against him, God has an alternative answer. And that alternative answer is to appoint his own king and to establish his own kingdom here upon earth. Mount Zion is a geographical location, isn't it? You can go and visit it today. So this is something happening upon earth. I have, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And by appointing a king, he has created a kingdom. The Bible calls it the kingdom of heaven. But it is like no other kingdom. For this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, even though it is located, if I can use that term, here upon earth. It is an earthly kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom. You may remember how the Lord Jesus, when confronted by Pontius Pilate, said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's in John chapter 18. The spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But it is established, here says the psalm, upon earth in a geographical location. Now what is it that made Mount Zion a holy hill? Why is it holy? Just one of seven hills on which Jerusalem was built. Okay, it's the tallest, biggest hill. It's the, the one that David adopted as his fortress. But none of those things make it holy. What made Zion holy in the days when David wrote this psalm? Well, there can be only one answer. It was the location of the Ark of the Covenant. David had rescued the Ark of the Covenant from the enemies of Israel and had returned it to Jerusalem and established it, housed it, rehoused it on uh, Mount Zion. And what was so important about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, when the Ark of the Covenant was in use, as it were, there hovered above the Ark what was known as the Shekinah glory. And that was a visible glory, yet one on which no man dared look. But there were times when that glory expanded so much that it filled 
the tabernacle and indeed it filled the, the temple later on when that was built, Solomon's temple, to such an extent that nobody could approach. His priests couldn't enter, dare not enter. That Shekinah glory was not, however, God. In the Acts 17 sermon, Paul points out that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. But it was a manifestation, an indication, a symbol, if you like, a visible symbol, a fearful symbol, but nevertheless a symbol of the presence of God among his people. And that is what made Mount Zion a holy hill, because that which manifested and advertised the presence of God among his people was located at the top of that hill. And that, of course, keys in with the statement in the psalm that God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. Because what it means is this, that the king is a manifestation of God, but not just a symbol, but the reality. The king that God establishes on Mount Zion is his only begotten son. Now there's an interesting point here as we read on when the anointed one and that word of course in the Hebrew means Messiah and in the Greek it means Christ. When Christ takes up the statement in verse 7 he says I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and so on. You are my son, this day I have begotten you. Now you know Jehovah's Witnesses and other Unitarians will say, ha there, God has begotten Christ and therefore Christ cannot be eternal. Christ cannot be divine because he had to be born at some time. But you see, the word begotten here is a reference to the incarnation of Christ. It's used in various ways in the New Testament. And one way in which it is used is to indicate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is here. God set his king upon his holy hill of Zion when Christ was incarnated. He always was God, from everlasting to everlasting. He was God. All the opening verses of John's Gospel, the prologue, make that very, very clear. Christ was always God. He was always co-equal with God, of the same essence of God. But here he is now born into the human world. And that is an act of begetting because he had no human father. God was his father, so God begat him as a human being. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. So here we have an interesting situation. We have God setting up his own king and his own kingdom here upon earth by sending his eternal son into the world and begetting him into a human form. 
and Christ's presence does beyond all that the Shekinah glory could do. Shekinah glory could only be a symbol of God's presence. Christ on Mount Zion is the reality of God's presence. Christ is shown there to be Emmanuel, God with us. And that is the essence of the kingdom of God. It is Christ with us, Christ among us, and indeed Christ in us through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And that is why he can inherit the ends of the earth as his possession. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Son, repeating the Father's decree, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In what sense has the Christ of Zion made the ends of the earth his possession? Because in every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation he has gathered out from among his enemies those whom he has transformed into his own people. Those he has brought out of darkness into his marvellous light, those who have been translated from under the authority of Satan into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so as of this day, the Lord Jesus Christ has inherited the ends of the earth as his possession because he has possessed a people drawn from every nation, tribe, tongue and kindred. And that is a fulfilment. You see, this psalm is prophetic. It doesn't refer to anything happening in David's own day. Looking forward to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. And there is a final wonder for us to mention and think about. The kingdom of God was established when Christ became a man, when he was begotten of God into the human race. But the effect and benefit and extent of that kingdom not only looks forward from the time of Christ's incarnation, but it works backwards as well. It covers the ages from the very creation of man to the time of Christ's arrival. It is a kingdom that is timeless, not limited by time, either in the past or in the future, because there are people from Abel onwards, and probably including Adam and Eve themselves, who are members of that kingdom by grace, by grace, through the saving work of Christ. And there are those who are listed in the 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, those from Abel onwards who were saved by faith in, in a coming Christ. They had to wait, they had to look forward to it, just as we look back upon it. But we are all members of the kingdom of God, all who have believed God, and through that belief have been pronounced righteous 
by the God of grace.